a new year full of surprises. But one thing is always predictable. Postage costs go up. Stamps.com gives you crazy discounts of up to 89% off USPS and UPS services. So when postage goes up, your business will barely notice the change. Stamps.com is like your own personal post office, wherever you are. You can even take orders on the go with the mobile app. No lines, no traffic, no waiting. Schedule package pickups, automatically find the cheapest and fastest shipping options, and seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. There's even a supply store where you can stock up on mailing supplies, labels, even printers. Stamps.com has been indispensable for over 1 million businesses just like yours. All you need is a computer or phone and printer. Take a chunk out of your mailing and shipping costs this year with Stamps.com. Sign up with promo code PROGRAM for a special offer that includes a four-week trial, plus free postage, and free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com code PROGRAM. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For further information, or to find out how you can volunteer, please go to LibriVox.org. Recording by Andy Minter Some Experiences of an Irish R.M. By Edith Enoni Somerville and Martin Ross Chapter 9 the policy of the closed door. The disasters and humiliations that befell me at Drumcurran Fair may yet be remembered. They certainly have not been forgotten in the regions about Skibourne, where the tale of how Bernard Shute and I stole each other's horses has passed into history. The granddaughter of the mountain hare, bought by Mr. Shute with such light-hearted enthusiasm, was restored to that position between the shafts of a cart that she was so well fitted to grace. Moonlighter, his other purchase, spent the two months following on the fair in favouring a leg with a strained sinew, and in receiving visits from the local vet, who, however uncertain in his diagnosis of Moonlighter's leg, had accurately estimated the length of Bernard's foot. Miss Bennet's mare, Cruskeen, alone of the trio, was immediately and thoroughly successful. She went in harness like a hero, she carried Philippa like an elder sister, she was never sick or sorry. As Peter Cadogan summed her up, that one had lived when another had died. In her safe-keeping, Philippa made her debut with hounds at an uneventful morning's cubbing, with no particular result except that Philippa returned home so stiff that she had to go to bed for a day, and arose more determined than ever to be a fox-hunter. The opening meet of Mr. Knox's foxhounds was on November the 1st, and on that morning Philippa, on Cruskeen, accompanied by me on the Quaker, set out for Ardmean Cross, the time-honoured fixture for All Saints' Day. The weather was grey and quiet, and full of all the moist sweetness of an Irish autumn. There had been a great deal of rain during the past month. It had turned the bracken to a purple-brown, and had filled the hollows with shining splashes of water. The dead leaves were slippery underfoot, and the branches above were thinly decked with yellow, where the pallid survivors of summer still clung to their posts. As Philippa and I sedately approached the meet, the red coats of Flurry Knox and his whip Dr. Jerome Hickey were to be seen on the road at the top of the hill. Cruskeen put her head in the air, and stared at them with eyes that understood all they pretended. "'Sinclair, 
said my wife hurriedly, as a straggling hound flogged in by Dr. Hickey uttered a grievous and melodious howl. "'Remember, if they find, it's no use to talk to me, for I shan't be able to speak.' I was sufficiently acquainted with Philippa in moments of enthusiasm to exhibit silently the corner of a clean pocket-handkerchief. I have seen her cry when a police constable won a bicycle race in Skibourne. She has wept at hearing Sir Valentine's Knox's health drunk with musical honours at a tenant's dinner. It is an amiable custom, but as she herself admits, it is unbecoming. An imposing throng, in point of numbers, was gathered at the crossroads. The riders being almost swamped in the crowd of traps, outside cars, bicyclists, and people on foot. The field was an eminently representative one. The clan Knox was, as usual, there in force. Its more aristocratic members, dingily respectable in black coats and tall hats, that went impartially to weddings, funerals, and hunts, and like a horse that is past mark of mouth, were no longer to be identified with any special epoch. There was a humbler, squireen element in tweeds and black-brimmed pot-hats, and a good muster of farmers, men of the spare, black-muzzled West of Ireland type, on horses that ranged from the cart mare, clipped trace high, to shaggy and leggy three-year-olds, none of them hunters, but all of them able to hunt. Philippa and I worked our way to the heart of things, where was Flurry, seated on his brown mare, in what appeared to be a somewhat moody silence. As we exchanged greetings, I was aware that his eye was resting with extreme disfavour upon two approaching figures. I put up my eyeglass, and perceived that one of them was Miss Sally Knox, on a tall grey horse. The other was Mr. Bernard Shute, in all the flawless beauty of his first pink coat, mounted on stockbroker, a well-known, hard-mouthed, big-jumping bay, recently purchased from Dr. Hickey. During the languors of a damp autumn, the neighbourhood had been much nourished and sustained by the privilege of observing and diagnosing the progress of Mr. Shute's flirtation with Miss Sally Knox. What made it all the more enjoyable for the lookers-on, or most of them, was that although Bernard's courtship was of the nature of a proclamation from the housetops, Miss Knox's attitude left everything to the imagination. To Flurry Knox the romantic but despicable position of slighted rival was comfortably allotted. His sole sympathisers were Philippa and old Mrs. Knox of Orsalus. But no one knew if he needed sympathisers. Flurry was a man of mystery. Mr. Shute and Miss Knox approached us rapidly, the latter's mount pulling hard. Flurry, I said, isn't that grey the horse that Shute bought from you last July at the fair? Flurry did not answer me. His face was as black as thunder. He turned his horse round, cursing two country boys who got in his way, with low and concentrated venom, and began to move forward, followed by the hounds. If his wish was to avoid speaking to Miss Sally, it was not to be gratified. "'Good morning, Flurry,' she began, sitting close down to Moonlighter's ramping jog as she rode up beside her cousin. "'What a hurry you're in! We pass no end of people on the road who won't be here for another ten minutes.' "'No more will I.' was Mr. Knox's cryptic reply, as he spurred the brown mare into a trot. Moonlighter made a vigorous but frustrated effort to buck, and indemnified himself by a successful kick at a hound. "'Bother you, Flurry! Can't you walk for a minute?' exclaimed Miss Sally, who looked about as large in relation to her horse as the conventional tomtit on a round of beef. 
"'You might have more sense than to crack your whip under this horse's nose. "'I don't believe you know what horse it is, even.' "'I was not near enough to catch Flurry's reply. "'Well, if you didn't want him to be lent to me, "'you shouldn't have sold him to Mr. Shute,' retorted Miss Knox, "'in her clear, provoking little voice. "'I suppose he's afraid to ride him himself,' said Flurry, "'turning his horse in at a gate. "'Get ahead there, Jerome, can't you?' "'It's better to put them in at this end than to have everyone riding on top of them.' Miss Sally's cheeks were still very pink when I came up and began to talk to her, and her grey-green eyes had a look in them like those of an angry kitten. The riders moved slowly down a rough pasture-field, and took up their position along the brow of Ardmean Covert, into which the hounds had already hurled themselves with their customary contempt for the convenances. Flurry's hounds— true to their nationality, were in the habit of doing the right thing in the wrong way. Untouched by autumn, the first bushes of Ardmean covert were darkly green, save for a golden fleck of blossom here and there, and the glistening grey cobwebs that stretched from spike to spike. The look of the ordinary gorse covert is familiar to most people as a tidy enclosure of an acre or so, filled with low plants of well-educated gorse. Not so many will be found who have experience of it as a rocky, sedgy wilderness, half a mile square, garrisoned with brigades of furze-bushes, some of them higher than a horse's head, lean, strong, and cunning like the foxes that breed in them, impenetrable with their bristling spikes, as a hedge of bayonets. By dint of infinite leisure and obstinate greed, the cattle had made paths for themselves through the bushes to the patches of grass that they hemmed in. Their hoof-prints were guides to the explorer, down muddy staircases of rock and across black intervals of unplumbed bog. The whole covert slanted gradually down to a small river that raced round three sides of it, and beyond the stream, in agreeable contrast, lay a clean and wholesome country of grass-fields and banks. The hounds drew slowly along and down the hill towards the river, and the riders hung about outside the covert and tried— I can answer for at least one of them, to decide which was the least odious of the ways through it, in the event of the fox breaking at the far side. Miss Sally took up a position not very far from me, and it was easy to see that she had her hands full with her borrowed mount, on whose temper the delay and suspense were visibly telling. His iron-grey neck was white from the chafing of the reins. Had the ground under his feet been red-hot, he could hardly have sidled and hopped more uncontrollably. Nothing but the most impassioned conjugation of the verb to condemn could have supplied any human equivalent for the manner in which he tore holes in the sedgy grass with a furious forefoot. Those who were even superficial judges of character gave his heels a liberal allowance of sea-room, and Mr. Chute, who could not be numbered among such, and had as usual taken up a position as near to Miss Sally as possible, was rewarded by a double knock on his horse's ribs that was a cause of heartless mirth to the lady of his affections. Not a hound had as yet spoken, but they were forcing their way through the gorse forest, and shoving each other jealously aside with growing excitement, and Flurry could be seen at intervals, moving forward in the direction they were indicating. It was at this juncture that the ubiquitous slipper presented himself at my horse's shoulder. "'Tis for the river he's making, Major,' he said, with an upward roll of his squinting eyes that nearly made me seasick. "'He's a castle Knox fox that came in in this morning, and you should get a head down to the ford.' A tip from Slipper was not to be neglected, 
and Philippa and I began a cautious progress through the gorse, followed by Miss Knox as quietly as Moonlighter's nerves would permit. "'Wishful has it!' she exclaimed as a hound came into view. 